Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. This week, a third pharmaceutical company says progress is being made toward its coronavirus vaccine. You may recall Monday, AstraZeneca reported its new vaccine is, quote, highly effective. This comes after Pfizer and Moderna made similar announcements this month. So coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with Morehouse School of Medicine's Dr. Lily Immergluck about clinical trials that they're conducting related to the vaccine. If we were not in a pandemic and we were under usual circumstances, a phase three trial might not include 30,000 or 45,000 or 60,000 folks. We want to really ramp it up as quickly as possible, but using still the same safeguards, guidelines that we traditionally do. That conversation later in the program. In related news, some households are gathering, some are not this Thanksgiving. But here's what we do know. Health experts all agree our behavior this holiday will have a direct impact on future newly confirmed COVID-19 cases. That could mean an increase or a decrease. And at the time of this broadcast, the total number of confirmed cases here in Georgia is 408,644. The number of hospitalizations, 34,268. And of those, 6,414 are considered ICU admissions. And the number of deaths, 8,648 since March. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, even with the pandemic part of our daily lives for so many months now, local nonprofits and organizations are coming together to provide resources to those in need this Thanksgiving. Now, today in East Point, fresh groceries will be distributed from 10 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Fulton Leadership Academy. This is a drive-up, contactless event open to the community. Also today, the Free Chapel Church will give away food at three locations in the metro area. The church plans to hand out 4,000 boxes, which will include fruit, vegetables, and dairy in Midtown, Gwinnett, and Gainesville. And this information is online at wabe.org slash closer look. Now, as many households will be giving thanks tomorrow, we recognize that there has been great loss and our condolences to those who've lost a loved one due to the virus. And we also say thank you to the millions of healthcare workers, first responders, and anyone who's been working to ensure our quality of life during this time. And this was something I talked about recently with Agnes Scott President Leo Katie Zach. You know, the last time we spoke, remember I asked you, I said, President Zach, had you been tested? And you said not yet, but I think you were going to. When you reflect on the symptoms, were they recognizable to you that maybe you had contracted the virus? 
Rose, I cannot tell you the number of times I think about that question um, and that you asked that. And did you have some, you know, foresight? Um, don't put that, that on me. No, I'm just, uh, I, just I don't know. I don't know. You're the oracle, I think. Um, I thought I had um, food poisoning. Mm. Um, first of all, I'm a horrible cook. Um, oh, President so, Zach, don't tell folks that sorry, <laughs> no one's going to come to your house now. That's for sure. Well, I'll have other people help me. Um, <laughs> but I I am just terrible, and I assumed that I had food poisoning mm -hmm. because I didn't have what they were advertising, you know, as the normal symptoms. And it's one thing that I would encourage people. Um, it What did happen is that, you know, I did have the gastrointestinal. I had a fever, but I didn't have initially the cough or the sore throat or the smell, things that people thought of. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate um, in the fact that my healthcare provider said, you know, you need to get to the hospital. And I have to confess, um, while I was there, I'm like, I have to go. Um, you know, I have things to do. And they're like, oh, no, um, you're not going to. So the other lesson there mm -hmm. is if you're not feeling well, even if it doesn't fit the symptoms for a number of days, talk to a healthcare provider um, and seek help. During your time of getting well, what was going through your mind? Or did you think maybe, I don't know how I'm going to come out of this? Um, well, I will say I am extremely grateful um, to the entire community for their thoughts and prayers. I'm grateful to science and Emory University Hospital and the healthcare. Um, Star, the nurse who was there, who encouraged me all the time, if you're listening, you were absolutely awesome. And um, there, it was, it was a difficult period. I will say, I think it was even more difficult, and this is something I think that people don't realize, for the people around me, for my husband mm -hmm. who couldn't visit. Um, there was a period of time I was on a ventilator, I wasn't conscious, and he he couldn't visit. Um, so the community took care of him too. And I will say that was also a time that the other college presidents really came through and helped to support me and um, my community. So I am so grateful um, to everyone for what they did. And yes, there were times I made a couple promises to God. Um, I'm still working on some of those. Um, but one of them, as you might hear, my voice is still healing. Mm -hmm. And that has really focused me to make sure that people can use their voice, mm -hmm. to raise their voice, raise their voice um, through a vote or raise their voice for social justice. So, and I also recognize that I was privileged to have the care that I did. And others may not have that privilege and that access and to use my voice to ensure that they get that access. It puts a lot of things in perspective, doesn't it, President Zach? It certainly does. And yes, you can go ahead and shout out Star and any of the uh, health workers that, that saw you through this. So yeah, go ahead. Say her name they again. Are yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Star, you were awesome. Um, and, you know, all of the doctors who were fantastic, the nurses, the aides, and, you know, even just to the anyone who would come in to the ICU, they were so caring and so encouraging. And I learned so much about how to encourage others because they never gave up. Mm -hmm. And they constantly encouraged me and told me not to give up. And I hope I take that to every single student 
at Agnes Scott and beyond that never give up. Agnes Scott President Leo Kediazak thanking the medical and support staff during her hospitalization due to COVID-19. Yes, we're all still in this together. Coming up, your request to revisit the conversation with Atlanta Bishop Robert Wright and his nine suggestions to heal the nation. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. We asked you, the community, to sum up this year. Chaos. (laughs) It's just everything that happened from politics to just the uh, coronavirus to society. It's just nobody expected it. Everything happened at the same time. Nobody was prepared for anything. It was just craziness. Revelation, because it revealed a lot of things. Um, Everybody was put in the same situation and had to deal with a lot of things. It revealed a lot of things about how our government was caring for us. Um, Just a lot of things were revealed this year. Shocking. Uh, Just so many things have happened that I don't think anyone could plan for or expect or even imagine in their wildest dreams. And it's all happened this year. Chaotic, anxious, but at the same time there is hope. So it was hope is the word that I would look for. Yes, truly an extraordinary year and has highlighted in the news media, social media, Uncle Bob. We are a divided nation, everyone says. And that could be why Atlanta Bishop Robert Wright is part of what he calls nine things you can do to heal the nation. And Bishop Wright joins me now. Welcome. Glad to have you back on the program. Thanks, Rose. Good to be with you. How do you sum up this year? <laughs> My goodness, all of those things that we've heard already. I mean, it's it's been a revelation. It's surfaced some stuff that was always there. It's amplified it. It's been chaotic. Uh, it's been a gut punch. And at the same time, living beside all of that it, are opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, opportunities for us all to step up, take up some agency and be, you know, as the, as the, as the old saying goes, be the change we want. And we ha- we're realizing, I think now, the limitations of politics, right? right or left, red or blue. 
And we've mm. got to realize that we're going to have to step up and be an, an active citizenry uh, or this thing is going to come apart. Are we a nation divided? Always have been from the founding. That's what the history books say. Always have been on on slavery, on human dignity, uh, on women, uh, on religion. We always have been. This is our, our DNA. And yet at the same time, there have been amazing chapters in our history together when we found a way to pull together and move forward. And I'm hoping for that now. Throughout all of this since March, um, Bishop Wright, what have you observe? What's been your takeaway and how have you used this? I mean, people call upon you as a member of the faith community. You're sought after for a a lot beyond just dealing with faith, but dealing with everyday life and all those those issues that go along with that. How have you been able to to be that voice throughout all this? I I appreciate that. I, I think none of us are an island unto ourselves. And so we're interdependent. I've been relying on the wise people in my life. Uh, you know, my, the, the wisdom bringers, the truth tellers, uh, the people that we can laugh with, uh, all of them have helped me immensely. But I think what we what we realize and, and, and agree upon across a lot of spaces is, we, number one, we've got to acknowledge the reality of this thing. Uh, it, it, it is it is there's the reality of the situation, of uh, the health situation, of the racial reckoning, of the um, the unseemly sort of political tone. We've got to acknowledge that. And we've got to make space for grief. A lot of people out there hurting. Uh, across the board. So we, we have to acknowledge the grief. This is not a time for sort of a stiff upper lip and stoicism. This is a time to acknowledge that this is really difficult. More people, you know, coming down with depression, more people are reaching to substances to make it through. Suicide is up. Uh, alienation, isolation is up. So we've got to acknowledge this. But at the same time, acknowledging it is the perfect precondition for hope. You can't rush through those steps, but those steps, uh, they're intertwined. And so as we acknowledge it, we begin to sort of realize we're up against this thing together. And then those people who want hope and who want progress, they emerge, especially at times like this. I've talked to so many people on this program, and when we talk about acknowledging folks, usually it's always acknowledge the other individual's viewpoint uh, try to look through their lens. But I haven't had anyone say acknowledge the grief. And do you yeah. think that that is what's probably missing, that where folks aren't being sympathetic or empathetic to the plight of someone who may not look like them or come from their community, who's dealing with That's something right. totally different? Yeah, we're, we're afraid to acknowledge grief because we don't want to be, you know, it's a tsunami of grief out there. We don't want to acknowledge it because we feel if we acknowledge it, then we'll never recover. It would just be overwhelmed. But we've got to, you know, we, we've absolutely got to. It means we care when we have grief and when we realize that there's loss. Uh, it, it's a part of the cadence of the world. You know, there, there is grief and there is loss and then hope is born anew. And so we've got to do this. Otherwise, we're going to sort of develop a series of what I call, you know, spiritual, physical, political zombies who don't acknowledge the reality of what's actually happening and therefore never really address it. And in, and in acknowledging that grief, not just with the pandemic, but also are you saying acknowledge the grief that perhaps an entire community is dealing with, whether it be because of the killing of George Floyd or Rayshard Brooks or Sequoia Turner? Uh, is that also part of acknowledging grief then for an entire community that you may not be familiar with? Or even, let's be clear, you may not understand it. I have some folks say to me, I don't understand because I'm not that of that race or of that right. ethnicity. No, I think that's right. I think we've got to acknowledge there's no, there's no weakness in acknowledging that this hurts. You know, I've, I'm the father of five children. I've had to sit in front of television screens and try to explain this 
and try to you know give voice and see uh, how it's impacting. So we, we've got to get it talked about. We've, we've got to point ourselves in healthier directions. And part of that health means saying, this hurts, or I'm afraid, or uh, I have a sort of ambiguous relationship or ambivalent relationship with law enforcement. Yes, they're here to protect and serve, and I've been the beneficiary of that. But at the same time, I'm afraid that, you know, a, a broken stoplight or running a stop sign uh, might, in, you know, I might wind up in the morgue. All of that is real. And so what's what we're being asked to do right now is to do some what I call spiritually mature work, all of us, uh, some some citizen mature work, all of us, in realizing that there's a lot of gray. And if we don't account for some of this gray, I mean, think about it. You just reported that over 240,000 Americans have died. More than 8,000 Georgians have died. We have not adequately talked about that. We're, we're racing on and doing things about livelihood, and that's important and all that other stuff. But we have not acknowledged that these people are our friends, our neighbors, church members, uh, society members, uh, club members. These people's lives mattered, white, black, blue, you know, you know, orange and green. These people mattered. And, and we have not done that. We've been in a hurry to do other things and to our own spiritual, physical, mental detriment, I think. Hmm. Bishop Wright, what led you to be part of this nine things you can do to, to heal the nation? What's the backstory What's, here? The, the backstory is simply I'm, I'm watching the news like everybody else is. I'm realizing that many of us are just uh, overwhelmed, right? And, I, and I'm realizing that, you know, we can't outsource this to Washington, D.C. Whether you're candidate won or didn't win, uh, we can't outsource this to our governor here in Georgia. We can't outsource this to, uh, to the president. We've got to be a more active citizenry. And so I realized that uh, what are, I, I decided, well, what are the things we can actually do? Because there's, there's lots of talk, right? There's lots of broad stroke sort of hopeful talk. But what can we actually do today that's going to make some difference? And what would it be like if we did that individually and then bundled that together collectively? And so we came up with these nine things. It's not an exhaustive list, mm -hmm. but what I hope is that people will add to the list. Uh, and it, it has everything, and it's it's based on. I'm a person of faith, so it's it's deeply based on the best we know from our spiritual traditions, uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity and beyond. It's highly reflective, highly active, has everything to do with self-management, acknowledging my part of this, and deciding to change. You have also enlisted the help of some, I'm assuming, friends and and those of like-minded. Why well, was important to have this diverse collection of folks talking about these nine things you can do to heal the nation? Because there's strength in diversity. There's strength in diversity of opinion. There's strength in diversity of perspective. Absolutely. Uh, I had something to add, but so did other people have something to add. And so we want to give and offer the, the, the best we can. This is not partisan. It's not for any particular group. It's for us as an American family. And we've got to say that more and more and more, that we're an American family. That old quote, it's cliche, but it's true. We may have come here in different ships, but we're in the same boat now. That's absolutely true. And so what's going to help us be healthy together as we make progress? When you are in a process where you're trying to figure out or be this, this platform, this voice that regardless if you do subscribe to a religion or, or any type of spirituality, mm -hmm. that it is welcoming to everyone and and yeah. when you and we're going to play a little clip of that in just a moment. But as you put this together, you thinking about you know making sure that this message people don't think oh it's just the church preaching to us or it's just the bishop preaching that yes. regardless if you yes. subscribe to any religion or not that you can understand the message at least. Yeah, because I, I think at the end of the day, it, it, the heart of us all is good. 
And so I'm, I'm trying to make an appeal to the good that's in all of us, to the God that's in all of us, whether you subscribe to that language or not, there is good in us. And if we can amplify that and if we can leverage that and, and mobilize that, then I think we're all better off. So I'm always trying to talk beyond the church's walls, always trying to talk beyond the synagogue, beyond the mosque. I'm trying to talk to people. You know, I happen to be a Christian. And, and when we watch Jesus, really, Jesus is talking to everybody. He's not bound by a tradition. He's formed by a tradition, but he offers the very best of that tradition to everybody. And I think that's the best of spirituality. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Bishop Wright, we're going to play a, a bit of that for our listeners. You are listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We're back in a moment. Hang with us. continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. If you just joined us, I'm joined by Atlanta Bishop Robert Wright, and he's part of what he's become part of what they call nine things you can do to heal the nation. We're actually going to play the entire clip for you in just a moment. But Bishop Robert, I want to get your thoughts on this, Bishop Wright. Do folks ever tell you, you, you too political, don't be talking politics. <laughs> yeah, I love it when they say that, because I understand that politics means the common good. Uh, I would like to make a, a dis distinction when people want to label me as political. I am political because the gospel is political, but I'm not partisan. Mm -hmm. And that's a key distinction, right? Political means I'm after the common good, the wellness of us all. And I'm going to be about that, about sharing resources and about sharing gifts and talents for progress for all of us. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If that makes me political, then yes, and twice on <laughs> Sunday, but I'm not a partisan, which is a difference. Absolutely. Well, what do you make of that? You know, listen, some religions and some faith-based groups are very heavily involved in campaigns and, you know, uh, advising politicians. And politicians love to say, I'm of this, I'm of that. And, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have to say, I have to say it troubles me. Uh, when I think about the best of the faith tradition, uh, I understand us as being ambassadors for a God who is big and who loves all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our God is not small. So we ought not chop up God in small bits and pieces, red or blue or otherwise. And so it, it worries me that we're trying to make God in our own image and, and have God to believe our political platform. I think it does the conversation about religion a great harm, especially in the eyes of young people who are tempted to write the whole thing off as small and antiquated. Mm -hmm. Well, as promised, take a listen to this. This is the things you can do to heal the nation. Hello everyone, Bishop Wright here. Uh, we have had an awfully difficult year as a nation, an awfully difficult year, and the year ahead promises to be one of lots of work, especially the work of healing. Uh, and so a number of us have put together a list of the nine things that you and I can do beginning today that will heal our nation. Please join me on these nine things. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Number one, pray for our nation. Pray for President Trump. Pray for President-elect Biden. Number two, 
Be kind in speech and action, especially with those with whom you disagree. Tercero, acepta la petición de Jesús de orar por nuestros enemigos y de bendecir a todos los que nos maldigan. Four, use your social media platforms only for positive, non-aggressive, encouraging, and constructive purposes. Number five, refuse to pass along information as truth that does not bear the marks of good scholarship and fairness. Reflexiona y abandona tu necesidad de sentirte y comportarte como alguien superior a otros miembros de la familia estadounidense. Number seven, schedule a conversation with a family member or a coworker who sees the world differently and be curious rather than defensive or combative. Number eight, accept responsibility for making the country and the world better, kinder, healthier, safer, cleaner, and more just. And finally, number nine, commit to an organization for three years whose purpose is to bring equity to our country, our American family. God bless you. Now, Bishop Wright, you asking for a lot <laughs> for some people. <laughs> I like the social I media. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm asking for a lot. Ask for a lot, Absolutely Bishop. Absolutely right. You know why? You know why, Rose? I'm glad you said it because it takes a lot. Mm-hmm. For all of the progress that we have made as a country, it has taken an extraordinary effort on behalf of the average person to make the change we say we're about in this country. And so why have we stopped asking you know, big things and heavy things uh, from people. The people that you and I admire, I bet we could create a list together, are those men and women who did extraordinary things, who lived normal lives, who never thought they were changing the course of history. They just thought that was right and decent to do. And so, yeah, I'm asking a lot. That's the ask. Step it up. Raise the floor height. Let's do this together. We can make it better. The uh, young man who talked about, you know, accept responsibility to make this a a just world. Did you come up with all of these sort of affirmations and then you connected them with certain people? I did. I I did. And, um, you know, I have to I have to say that my uh, my young son, my my 21 year old son, helped me an awful lot because we always want to take into consideration the younger folks among us. And then we sort of farmed it out to some people. And, and there are people on this list who are Republican, who are Democrat. There are people on this list who would not agree with a lot I have to say in, in, in a lot of instances, but who can come together now and produce this and offer this to a wider audience. And so that's the exciting part. If we can find a first step together, mm-hmm. then I think we're on to something. But, but let's, let's be clear. Uh, we have to do this. I mean, I, like I said, I have five children. I want to give them an America it looks more like uh, America's ideals mm-hmm. than it does presently. Well, and if that's going to happen, we have to do something. Well, and Bishop Wright, and, and we've talked about this before. Look, folks know that whatever your issue, concerns you had, challenges with this last administration, yeah. all the issues don't magically disappear with the no. election of a new president. And, and some of these issues have been around for a very, very long time. You know, um, centuries. So, yes. With the understanding that people have the understanding that this is not going to magically disappear. It takes work. Um, It's exhausting. It's exhausting work. You know that John Lewis talked about it. 
Um, yes. How do you what do you suggest to people to balance themselves in all of this if they want to be a part of effective change, whatever that looks like for them? Yeah, I appreciate that. So one of the things I would say is, is that um, one of the reasons we created the list was to give people something specific, something particular, because if you don't chop this thing up into small pieces, you will be overwhelmed and undone and won't do anything because you'll, it'll, just the world will just fall on you. A great friend of mine in Emory, uh, Gregory Ellison, uh, uh, tells a story about his grandmother, a little boy. He was a little boy. He was an enterprising little boy. He said to his grandma, I want to change the world. And uh, wow, what, what an amazing thing that is to say. And grandma, without missing a beat, turned to her beloved little boy and said, baby, I don't know about changing the world, but you can change the three feet in front of you. Mm. This list is so that you and I can have some idea about how to get working on the three feet that's in front of us. And so on the way to this, we're going to have to say some no's to some things. So look at your over uh, sort of uh, overwrought schedules. Maybe you need to trim that down. That's why we asked you commit to one organization, just one organization and go deep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are, are the types of things. Focus yourself, ask yourself, reflect. What do you care most about? What can you contribute? Not all of us are going to be in Congress. Not all of us are going to be in Senate. So what can you do? Mm -hmm. I, as a, I, as a, a bishop, someone who, who has a form, who communicates, I have something to offer but so does someone else. And so I'm asking people so that we don't get overwhelmed, so that we do care for ourselves, pick your lane and commit to it. Well, what are you committing to? I'm committing to doing this. I'm committing to broadening my conversation partners. It is very easy for a clergy person to stay within his or her boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. His or her denomination. And what I want to do is what I understand Jesus did a lot of. I want to increase my conversation partners. And so I'm really appreciative of this format because I think religion, spirituality at its best has something to say to everybody. I think it's a resource that we can harness, a 6,000 in some instances, 8,000 year old resource mm -hmm. that you and I can use, especially now when the chips are down. Atlanta Bishop Robert Wright talking about the nine things you can do to heal the nation. We'll have a link on our website. Bishop Wright, as always, good to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Rose, God bless you, and thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here in Atlanta, the Morehouse School of Medicine is conducting two COVID-19-related clinical trials. Now, I recently had a conversation with Dr. Lily Emmergluck. She's the Associate Professor in Microbiology, Biochemistry, Immunology, and Pediatrics, and she's also the Director of the Pediatric Clinical and Translational Research Unit in their Clinical Research Center. That's a lot. And as our conversation begins, Dr. Emmergluck starts talking about what science has discovered about this coronavirus since the early part of the year. So there are a few things that uh, I think we have learned from this virus. First of all, in the beginning of the pandemic, we felt like uh, the people that were affected uh, more severely are in our elderly uh, population, uh, folks with comorbidities, uh, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And one thing that's been consistent though is the disproportionate number of uh, communities of color that have been uh, affected and that's that's been uh, throughout this whole time period. But what I want to say is really as time has marched on and we have gathered new evidence and seen more examples of people who have affected, the population has changed. Mm -hmm. Children are affected, 
young adults. I, I walk around in streets of Atlanta and I sometimes I want to take a microphone and shout to them and say, hey, you know what? Actually, you're, this age group that I see in the bars and in restaurants, mm-hmm. they are being affected. The other issue is uh, what we call long COVID symptoms. Uh, we're starting to see that the impact of having COVID-19 infections can be uh, uh, longer than just getting over the acute infection. Mm-hmm. And what that means, we're not sure because we are still in this pandemic. So we're mm-hmm. gathering uh, the data as it is coming out. We're uh, keeping an eye on what's the best way to manage each of the conditions that come up. And, and that's really challenging uh, because it causes people to pause and think about why it, why is the science seem like it's changing? It's not so mm-hmm. much the science is changing. It's more that we're learning about this. We're so, learning about this novel coronavirus. So folks like you scientists, you all are still finding out how the body reacts to this virus. That's, that's that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And all of us are different. You know, we're not the same uh, composition in terms of our immunogenic response uh, to pathogens or, or germs. Uh, we're not the same in our ability to handle uh, not just the, from an immune side, but just from our physical and mental uh, aspects of uh, dealing with an infection. I'm curious, Dr. Emma Gluck, and maybe some of our listeners are too, are you all reaching out to other scientists around the world and see what they're coming up with, what they're noticing. I imagine there is a lot of communication. Yes. Um, and it's not even uh, bound by uh, being in the United States. It's international. Mm-hmm. This is a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I've been impressed uh, with how uh, quickly we share information, uh, how we are collaborating uh, across continents, um, and uh, making sure that uh, taking that mindset of it's like all hands on deck, we, we all want to get out of this. And how do we best do that? Let's talk about the two COVID-19 vaccine trials. First of all, is there a difference between the two? So the two uh, trials that are happening, uh, so one is that I'm overseeing, which is um, tied to the COVID vaccine trials. Uh, and you have seen that uh, it's part of the U.S. COVID prevention network. Mm-hmm. And there are more than hundreds of sites, both nationally and internationally, that are involved in this. Uh, and it's a unprecedented collaboration between uh, academia, uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, the federal government to try to uh, develop uh, the most effective uh, vaccine uh, for the general public. The other is tied to testing. Um, we are part of a uh, the HBCUs, uh, the four medical schools, to try to do mm-hmm. testing, COVID testing for all of the HBCUs across uh, the country. Um, so, you know, there's some other COVID-related studies that we're also doing. Uh, but those are the primary or like those are the major ones. The voice you hear is Dr. Lily Emmergluck from the Morehouse School of Medicine. And we're discussing the two COVID-19 clinical trials currently being conducted at the medical institution. Let's talk about the phases of a vaccine trial, Dr. Emmergluck. It can be very complex. But what phase are you all in? So for the COVID vaccine clinical trial that we're about to start, it's called a phase three. Um, 
and if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to kind of give some um, background sure. on the different phases because I think it's important for uh, the audience and um, the public to know um, because I, I know there's a, a lot of concern uh, and, you know, in general, as a, honestly, as a pediatrician, the whole vaccine hesitancy, you know, is a topic that I'm not unfamiliar with because mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the childhood vaccines that are recommended in, in the U.S. and how to address some of those. But tied to clinical trials, all of these vaccines are, they started in clinical trials. And the, the starting point actually is what we call preclinical. Mm-hmm. So preclinical is where we look at different uh, non-human models to see, you know, what might be uh, a, a good uh, vaccine candidate to put forward and conduct human research. And that may take years. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. kind of like behind the scenes. It doesn't ever make the, the front pages of their news. And then we move into clinical phase one trials. And in that phase, we are looking at like, what is the best dosing that gives us the best safety profile that we want? Um, so usually they, we select healthy volunteers mm. uh, to participate in those. And usually those are um, typically less than 100 folks that get involved in that uh, type of study. You said the best dosing. Is this the best dosing of a drug with, that might present the fewest side effects? And give us the, uh, in a vaccine, give us the, immunogenic response that we would expect or would want to protect us if we were to encounter the real germ. Mm. Then what we move on to, if it passes all those kind of uh, benchmarks as far as being satisfactory, so now we've like narrowed down like, okay, we think this dosing works. We go into phase two. Phase two, again, looks focuses in on the um, more about the safety and not just the safety, but just like, you know, are you going to get a fever? You're going to get, you know, uh, any of the uh, things that we might expect as if you encountered, you know, something that your immune, uh, your immune system is going to respond to. And it's a little bit larger. So again, looking at mostly healthy folks uh, to participate in these studies. Once it gets into that, and those are usually like around a thousand, let's just say. Wow. Once we kind of move forward into the phase three, now, one of the things about uh, the phase three studies that are going through the U.S. COVID Prevention Network, and this is part of why it's on this operation warp speed that people make reference to and Mm -hmm. accelerate is because we are getting hundreds of sites involved in this to get many more times of what uh, volunteers to participate Whereas if we were not in a pandemic and we were under usual circumstances, uh, a phase three trial might not include 30,000 or 45,000 or 60,000 folks. Uh, We want to really ramp it up as quickly as possible, but using still the same uh, uh, safeguards, uh, guidelines that uh, we traditionally do uh, under routine circumstances. So that's phase three. Uh, and then there's also phase four. But anyway, the, we're, we are going to be involved in these phase three trials so that we can get the numbers of uh, folks involved and understand whether or not three things. My, mainly one is, did we generate a immunogenic response? Mm-hmm. Do we generate the uh, 
level of protection from each of us that we think that if we encountered the real deal, we would not get disease. Number two. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, number two is looking at, again, uh, the safety guideline, safety um, aspect. What we saw in phase one and phase two, are we seeing the same thing? And there's a lot of attention paid on this. Uh, uh, we are monitoring this all the time with each participant, okay, for each of the vaccine sponsors. And the last is like durability, mm -hmm. you know, can we say that, uh, you know, not knowing, and we're learning about this virus as we go, can we say that's a lasting immunity? So if the strains change or, you know, what's happening down the road, and that piece is partly why we ask each participant to be in the study for up to two years, because we want to make sure that the antibody response, and if they encounter uh, SARS-CoV-2, that they will remain protected. It's interesting because each year the flu vaccine is different. And so I imagine someone listening saying, well, is this going to be the same for the COVID vaccine? Would it change? Yeah, that's a good point. And let me just, can I make my little plug about flu vaccine? I think it's really important that we get the flu vaccination. Uh, if uh, you don't traditionally get it every year for whatever reason, I would ask people to pause and think about getting it this year. We are already seeing uh, influenza cases come up uh, in different states. And my worry as a, a primary care physician and also infectious disease specialist is that we're going to see some amplification of COVID-19 infection if we don't get on top of the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Georgia and I saw that uh, over 60% of African-Americans in this state do not get the annually uh, flu vaccines, I am just trying to ring that fire bell as loudly and as often as I can. Um, and we are part of a statewide coalition to try to address health disparities. And this is one of the aspects of that is us running around in uh, Morehouse has a research mobile unit running around trying to figure out ways to uh, provide mm -hmm. influenza vaccine at no cost to uh, pe people that uh, are able to um, come and come to the clinics that were on, on wheels. Uh, and Dr. McGluck, look, you are more than a scientist. You see patients. So you are at the intersection of not only working in the labs, but seeing people face to face. Uh, you of all folks know the importance of how this vaccine, why this vaccine should include so many diverse populations. Yes. Um, so one of the reasons I came to Morehouse School of Medicine uh, more than 15 years ago uh, is partly because I believed in the uh, mission of Morehouse School of Medicine. It, it is it's a small enough institution that every aspect of what we do focuses on that social mission and commitment. And I'll give you good examples of this in having done uh, clinical research within uh, our institution for the last 15 years. We have a community advisory board. Uh, we actively identify people in our communities they're not necessarily physicians. They're not necessarily scientists. They are representative of their, their own communities. And we involve them at every step of the process 
that's involved in clinical research. I'm talking from design of the clinical study. I'm talking about evaluating and, uh, uh, information that we hear, hear back from our participants, uh, analysis of the data, what do we do if, as far as you know, going back and talking and sharing the information? All of those things are essential mm -hmm. to what each research project that's conducted at Morehouse School of Medicine. So for this vaccine trial, we so, so, so know about the challenges that many communities of color. And also, I mean, it's just been ex ex accentuated by the fact that all the, the political climate mm -hmm. that has used, I, I feel like it's used the vaccine uh, trials as a way to promote their own political message. And I, as a physician and as a scientist, I would say pause and say, step back, think about this. Mm -hmm. What is the best way using science and evidence to guide us as far as what to do for each of us to get us out of this pandemic? And how do we talk to our communities about that? Mm -hmm. How do we hear and listen to them and say, what, what is it that you're worried about and how can we address that? Um, I, uh, applaud, our, our dean president uh, has done uh, a yeoman's job at trying to reach out and talk to as many communities and get on uh, many different forums to try to promote uh, this messaging and wanting mm -hmm. to make sure all communities of color hear this. We recently had um, kind of like uh, education of and training of our vaccine trial team, and I printed out that pledge. And I have this pledge posted up on my uh, on my desktop because uh, I look at it every day because I, I want to make sure that it, everybody that's involved in this clinical vaccine trial thinks about this, attends to it. If they have questions about it, they that needs to be raised um, so that we it's a constant communication and dialogue. Um, so th that's some of the ways that I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, you did. Uh, and, you know, Dr. McGluck, when you talked about, look, it can take years for a vaccine to go from discovery and development to even FDA mm -hmm. approval. My question for you is, if the goal is to distribute a vaccine next year, what, as a scientist, what are those concerns or what is maybe even the top concern that you have as a scientist to make sure that this vaccine is one will be effective and two that because it is on a people may not like this term fast track but because of the complexity of the of this virus we know why if the goal is to distribute it next year well I worry about uh, how we can determine who's going to get the vaccine in what order because of just uh, having um, the actual doses available for our entire population. I heard people were worried that people won't take the vaccine. I'm, um, you know, I'm more worried about like supply. Do we have enough? You know, um, I guess because I'm an optimist and I'm a pro-vaccine um, person. Um, I worry about also, you know, we don't, know for sure the durability of this vaccine uh, that element you know um, we're caught in a difficult situation in the sense that we 
once we know that the safety profile and the immunogenic profile is uh, going to protect us at the short term, I worry a little bit that as we find out information in terms of long-term protection, what that means, um, balanced with, you know, number of doses, you know. Um, so back to one of your questions earlier was, you know, in reference to the flu vaccine and how we have to formulate a uh, flu vaccine that uh, we believe will target the strains that are circulating in our communities every year. I see that, you know, maybe that's a potential that would happen with SARS-CoV-2. We just don't know at this point. Um, but to me, it's about making sure people um, who are participating in these vaccine trials stick with the whole you know, the, the whole duration, because that information is going to help us understand about that durability of the immunogenic response um, that we, uh, we generate in response to the vaccine. But I want to talk about then the importance of having, and this is what Pfizer had released in their statement about uh, the vaccine, that the clinical trials were among a diverse population. I think it's so important. Um, and I'll tell you, the main reason is if you look at the spectrum of who's affected by this uh, infection by SARS-CoV-2. So there's a wide variety of different types of clinical uh, manifestations of having a COVID-19 infection. And so if you wanna say, does this vaccine uh, do a good job at protecting us? Well, it ought to include people that uh, we think would be most uh, affected by disease. And so that crosses uh, age, that crosses race, ethnicities, that crosses cultural aspects. Uh, you know, you know, our, our physical uh, well-being is not just uh, one-dimensional, right? It's affected by what we eat, uh, what kind of environment we're working in. All of those things impact our immune system. And how are we are able to uh, uh, fight infection and disease. I was recently on a um, black uh, uh, radio talk show and what, and more important than my conversation or what I added to that uh, was the gentleman who recovered from COVID-19. And he came and he said that in 10 seconds, he made a decision that potentially could have, uh, it affected his life. Mm. In 10 seconds, he made a decision not to wear a face mask to go into a situation because he left it in his car and he didn't want to walk back to his car. Mm. And he ended up being in the ICU intubated and he worried that he wouldn't see his teen son ever again because they were limiting the, the visitors. The reason I share that is because he said to this audience, he said, you know, I made it through. And I think part of that is because I'm in good shape. I'm, I mean, he, I don't know his, his exact age, but he wasn't, he wasn't elderly. He was younger than me. Um, but he, he said, I, you know, I watch what I eat. I, you know, I watch uh, how I take care of my body. And I think that's what helped me survive. But that being said, he had the respiratory, the whole spectrum of being near death's door uh, from this infection. And yet we say, well, up to 40% of us might have asymptomatic infection. Mm. Well, the, the issue is we don't know 
who's going to have asymptomatic and who's not. And so goes full circle to say, if we want to have a vaccine that really works and we say it's really effective, then it should represent, it should be based on evidence that says we looked at all these different types of people by age, by race, by uh, comorbid conditions. Dr. Lily Immergluck, Associate Professor of Microbiology, Biochemistry, Immunology, and Pediatrics, and also the Director of the Pediatric Clinical and Translational Research Unit in the Clinical Research Center at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Immergluck, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for really breaking this down for our listeners. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer for today, Kevin Rinker, he rides a bike. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look or wherever you subscribe to those favorite podcasts, Closer Look should be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 